This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 21. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 21, Literary Roots of the Revolution. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 20 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 21. We often hear about the intellectual class that supported the revolution of 1979 in Iran. We also then hear about the heartbreak of those same intellectuals that followed when the revolution was co-opted by clergy formalists and dreams of a new democratic and open Iran were destroyed. And many of those intellectuals were executed, imprisoned, or sent into exile. But given Iran's celebrated history of literature and poetry, what role did Iranian writers and how they were treated and dealt with under Pahlavi rule play in bringing on a revolution in Iran? Indeed, how important was Persian literature in creating political sea change? And what were the lessons for those who fought repression and censorship under the monarchy when they faced an even worse plight under Khomeini? Our guest for this episode is a well-known literary figure and an acclaimed voice in the world of Persian language, literature, and culture. Dr. Ahmad Karimi Hakok is a professor of Persian at the UCLA Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures and the founding director of the Center for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland. Dr. Karimi Hakok was born in Mashhad, obtained his BA in English Literature from Tehran University, and his Master's and PhD in Comparative Literature at Rutgers University in the States. He is the author, editor, and translator of numerous books and more than 100 research articles and essays in recognition of his outstanding contributions to Iranology. He was the recipient of the most prestigious honor in that field, the Yarshater Lectureship in 2003. His latest book is entitled A Fire of Lilies, Perspectives on Literature and Politics in Modern Iran. And right now, Dr. Ahmad Karimi Hakok joins me from Los Angeles, California today. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you, Jian? It's good to talk to you. Uh, it is such an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. 
I want to ask you uh, about a lot of what you explore in this uh, compelling book of yours, A Fire of Lilies. And if you'll allow for a bit of a spoiler alert as an initial question to set the stage or the context for our conversation by getting right to the overall theme, part of your book examines the role of poets, writers, literature in supporting change and the revolution of 1979, and then reversing that support by the early years of the Islamic Republic when realizing that what had been created was not quite what they had hoped. You synthesized this speaking of your own experience in the prologue. You recount getting interrogated in 1983 by a representative of the Khomeini regime, and you say, let me quote you, I recall the chief interrogator most vividly as he pointed to the files in front of him and asked me why I, an opponent of the monarchical state, had now turned into such a counter-revolutionary academic, such an ardent opponent of the Islamic Republic. My response was uncompromising. The reasons are the same. Dr. Karimi Haikok, can you explain the meaning of that passage and what you mean when you say the same? Well, the same means, uh, I think and I am convinced that the monarchical Iran after 1953, that is the coup d'etat, for the last 20 five years of the Shah's rule uh, was not was not any better than anything we see today. It may appear that way because in uh, envisioning possible futures, we rely on the best of scenarios. Whereas someone like me being 25, 26 years old uh, at the time, I started looking at the concrete experiences I was going through. The fact is that the Savak was a very, very vicious secret police organization. It was not what it seemed to be. The Savak is was a horrible predecessor to what's only more horrible now, uh, and that is Savama. That is a become a, a ministry in itself. So in imagining all the possible futures, you do not rely so much on your wishes, but you look at your own experience. So when I was, I'm 25, 26 years old, and I'm thinking that Siakal has happened, that yes. is uh, five or six uh, revolutionaries in Gilan have disarmed the gendarmes in the gendarmerie, and for that, 14 people get killed, yes. get, get uh, executed. That's not it doesn't take your ideas to who's Khomeini. It takes ideas to what's, what, what, what happened last week and what is it what it is that you're reading in the newspaper today. So what I'm saying is uh, I, we all wish that we could imagine futures that would be better. But barring the ability to do that, you do that for yourself. You just think it cannot get worse than this. Mm. And I, for one, thought that oftentimes, almost every night as I was going to bed, I was thinking, it's really bad. Anything that happens is not going to be worse than this. Right. And it did turn out to be much worse than what, what it was. I, I was going to say, as you know, sitting there in L.A., uh, there there are people, you've already lost some folks listening, who will who will say, uh, how can you possibly compare the pre-revolution, you know, the Pahlavi years, no, no matter what you want to say, to, to afterward. But that is part of the theme of the book because you are a representative of writers and, and poets and, and the, the literature, the literary tradition in Iran that that enabled a revolution that turned into something that was not intended. And that's what I want to get to with this with this interview. And I'm, I'm so glad to get sure. the opportunity to do this. A little more context just of you and, and the role of literature because I there's some sweet um, moments uh, in, in learning about you. You're, you're not just an observer and teacher of Persian literature and sociopolitical and cultural trends. You're a writer, of course, yourself and a life long fan of Persian literature. You were a little boy, as I understand it, who became mm -hmm. captivated by Persian poetry based on your father reciting right. poems to you. Tell, tell us about that time. Oh my God, those were the days, yeah. Uh, you know, he uh, had a lot of poems memorized and I learned it from him, but I did not learn the system of Persian poetry. For that, I had to go to various libraries and go through stages of education. And only at Tehran University, I realized that Iran, my country, has got, has always had 
horrible political systems and wonderful and getting more and more wonderful cultural systems. So the distinction really educated me into not mixing politics with literature. Mm -hmm. In fact, even the best of literature in the whole world does not guarantee democracy. These are, these are, of course, sacred things, but each one would have to happen separately. As such, you know, in, in a country like Iran, we have always had horrible rulers, but we have had wonderful poets, which is what makes this country, this poetry, so beautiful. But reading beautiful poems of beautiful poets like Saadi and Hafiz, or uh, w what you were reciting, I was, I was uh, watching you, uh, last night, and then you know, she uh, I think reciting badly is what you want to say, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I refuse to be to think that out of this culture must have come very democratic people. Mm. The very poet who said this may have been. A, 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 a die-hard Muslim. And so it's amazing. Iran is one of those cultures where the farther away you get from the political history, the more it's, it's possible for you to become proud of your own culture. Mm. There's nothing, nothing that you take pride in when you, when you look at Khomeini and Khamenei or the Shah of Iran. But for the same reason you come to see as leaders of the culture, in the cultural field, those wonderful poets that have left us wonderful wisdom. But, but speaking to your book, uh, how and in a general sense first, I mean, we'll get into the specifics, how transformative can that literature be? How, how much change can that poetry, those poets bring about? In the introduction to your book, Asghar Sayyid Qohrab says, if Persian culture is the body of Persian-speaking peoples, poetry is the soul, the stamina, and the aura. Right. Now, I, I, I love that statement, but we know that poetry was inextricably tied to the Persian culture back to the book of King, you know, the Shahnameh. But right. beyond romantic ideals and uh, ideas and the, the, the way we walk around with pride talking about the place of poetry and literature in Iranian history, how and why do you believe poetry or writers have played a significant role in transforming events in contemporary Iran? I don't think they had much of a presence in the practical field. I don't think a good poem makes you a better person. You, it, it can give you the capacity to become a better person, but it does not get, there's no guarantee. In fact, some of those poems may encourage you to become as ruthless as possible, to annihilate your enemies. So in a, in a way, I think what the image that Asghar Said Qurab uses there and you just cited is wonderful, it's beautiful, but it's not really all beautiful bodies have beautiful souls or give rise to beautiful souls. If someone can have a beautiful body but a horrible soul or the opposite. As such, again, we have to think of these as separate fields. It's telling Jian, uh, that uh, I first titled my book Awkward Encounters. Hmm. And every one of the chapters in this book uh, cites at least one such awkward encounter. It was Asghar Said Qurab who suggested, you know, Fire of Lilies, and the, the phrase has been used in a poem by Shamlu, Sukht Bar Susanha, and I thought it was a beautiful image, but it's an image of someone who can really, who can destroy lilies to make fire, mm. and not out of need. So, in a way, since 1953 and on, almost all Iranian poets have been, all those who have been really we call committed poets, have now have had become uh, desirous of, of better times. Right. And it's that desire that gave, wrote, wrote, gave rise to an imaginary 
situation that we all imagined before the revolution. And it's not uh -huh. like everybody fell in line after the revolution. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of resistance. There, a lot of us, myself included, were saying, look, this, all of this is just, you know, the, the, the little chaso uh, chashak, you know, uh, unwelcome things in, uh, that the water of the revolution is taking with it. But it turned out to be the real soul of the revolution. But let, so, let me let me get to that idea of imagination in just a moment. Ahead. I just want to stick with with a, a general question about poets and, and writers, sure. which is that do do you think? I mean, given uh, the nature of the Iranian polity and given the nature of uh, the exalted place that literature and poets have or have had, sort of culturally. Uh, I mean, is there this sense, say this through the 20th century, where where the poet or the writer feels that they they have to be an agent of change? You know, if, if if I quote uh, Sayyid Qurab again in your in your intro, he says, in a in a country with a tumultuous political culture in which poetry functions as an icon of identity, it is not yeah. surprising that poetry and literature in general is still a chief medium for commenting on socio political events. Is that to say, do you think that writers in Iran have had little choice but to be political and, and be the voice of opposition in a political culture that, that has generally been characterized by repression? No, def definitely it's, it's true. But after all, everybody, including the poets, act on objective uh, experiences, not subjective imaginaries. So I grew up being raised in a family that, that cherished freedom and cherished uh, serving the country and cherished becoming someone of influence because they thought I was capable of that. And yet I see myself doing that and not doing it. Doing it in terms of, yeah, sure, you know, some Iranian American students may take my classes and benefit from them. Some of my American friends might, might understand uh, Iran better and Iranian history and Iranian culture better, but it, there's no guarantee. Again, it's like the imaginary versus the objective experience day in and day out, Xi'an, that I think that's where our poets uh, failed us in a way and failed their, themselves in the, because they gave rise to a wish in us all and they wished it with us and their poems created the desire in us and yet the desire was so badly let uh, awry okay let me ask you specifically about that sure. because that's the i mean it's the sort of the million dollar question and i love uh, you know, i'm so interested in the way you phrase it in your book you've said the revolutionary movement of that culminates in 1978 1979 in iran was itself and i'm quoting you in a profound sense a work of the imagination <laughs> yeah. You've just said that now too. It's it's hard to it's, it's, so to explain that. Tell tell us what you mean by the revolution or the revolutionary movement being a work of the imagination. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, it, uh, my first book in English came out in 1978. This is some years after the revolution. Sorry, uh, and you, what, you mean 88? What, no, 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 no. 1978 I mean, I mean, isn't after the revolution. <laughs> Uh, no, no, 19, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, 19, no, yeah, before the revolution, 1978, <laughs> okay, yes. Yes, thank you. Yes. And in fact, some, uh, you know, at that time, Americans didn't know much about Iran, and they were wondering, because many Americans thought that the Shah of Iran was on, 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 on the Takht the, Tavus, on the Tavus throne, and Peacock throne, and everything was fine in Iran. But then, there was people were asking themselves, the Americans were, uh, my friends were, uh, asking themselves why why it is that the Shah, why that we didn't know that the Shah was so deeply hated. And the reviewer of this book had said, well, if we didn't know, if the CIA did not know that the Shah of Iran was hate, deeply hated by his own people, maybe we should have some people who understand poetry. Persian poetry. So it was the poetry of the time, and this is the years immediately before the revolution, that gave rise to that kind of, when people used images of kids going to school, but instead of books in their pack, in their backpacks, they were carrying bombs. 
So it's it's that kind of a thing where nothing was in place in monarchical Iran. Uh, that's why a lot of people idealize the monarchical regime. And of course, I would have liked to uh, to to live in in, in that. Uh, uh, environment rather than the environment at the present, but we didn't know any better. It, it had given rise to us that the next revolution will, will take us to the uh, wonderful world, world where we would have freedom, and that's just around the corner. But the words work of the imagination makes me think yeah. it, it's fantasy. It's not It's not practical. It's, it's something that you're sure, conjuring sure. up that you is not based on actually what's happening on the ground. You're, you're right. You're right. I prefer the word fantasy. You're right. It was not true imagination. It was you were fantasizing some some ideal state, mm. which did not never never showed up. But that does not mean that the monarchy that the, that monarchical Iran was the favorite state. In fact, the culture has always had this imbalance between politics and literature. Yes, and. and and a lot of poets, including Saadi and Hafez and Molavi and everyone else, were faced in these in these horrible systems and wrote that beautiful poetry because it came out of their wishes. The difference is we thought it was right around the corner. All we have to do is get rid of the Shah, and of course everything will be fine. Well, and and, and the, the criticisms of the Shah were were more practical, uh, were, were less uh, uh, imaginary. I mean, you make the case that it was poets and writers that really articulated the case that, as you put it, that the monarchical sure. state was fundamentally at odds with the interests of the, the common people in Iran in the Pahlavi years. This is after the 1953 coup. Do, yes. do you believe writers and poets were... Again, this is the, the the sixty-four million dollar question. But do you believe the writers and poets were reflecting the sentiment of people? I mean, not in nineteen seventy-nine, because by that time it's you know it's hard to tell. Everybody's on the, the side of the revolution yeah. or whatever. But yeah. but in in say back to the the late fifties or into the sixties or even the seventies, do you believe the writers and poets were reflecting the sentiment of the people, or that writers and poets were fermenting and creating that sentiment? Well, both can be done. Both can be done, really. And and I had something of, of each one of them. At the end of my acknowledgement, I say, as a small token of my appreciation and sympathy, I would like to dedicate this work to all those who played a part in the making of the Iranian revolution only to suffer its consequences. You see, you have to distinguish between the imagining a new system, imagining the fall of monarchy, and imagining a, a system that's not as bad, and then seeing a system that's very bad, suffering its consequences, I call it. Mm -hmm. So I was one, when I was growing up, my dad and mom did not train me to become, an, to live in America and to serve Americans in understanding Persian anything better than they did. But they wanted me to serve, serve my own society, and so on and so forth. And these these day, these words I heard day and night that I was being raised in order to, to offer service to my country. Right. But I, I became deprived of that and the country became worse. But if it's a fantasy, how, how uh, you know, aren't you surely open to to the criticism of somebody going dude you know you and the your your poet friends sold us a bill of goods based on your imaginations and we we all went and created a revolution that got us into a worse place sure and then and, and their dads and moms uh, came along with us you see mm -hmm. it's not like it's 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 a generational thing it's not like there were people who were for the shah and there were people who were against the shah a shah the shah was deeply despised and that's the fact, regardless of what the revolution did to us. Well, let me ask you about that, because by the 60s and definitely the 70s, literary works, as you point out in your book in Iran, begin to paint the picture of the monarchy as this collision between the people uh, and the political power structure. And uh, and this is another uh, this is a quote I'm quoting from your book as the person of the monarch this would be the Shah, succeeded in bringing under his personal authority the various institutions of the state and government. His image was ingrained in literature as an yeah. evil presence alien yeah. to popular ideals. The, the idea of an evil presence is quite dramatic. Is that a symbolic notion or, or do you believe the Shah was really seen that way? 
Well, he seemed that way, but I, I realized that it's, it was uh, uh, something that we fantasized. But the point is, Iran was the first Middle Eastern state, Middle Eastern country, in which there was a constitution, 1905. And the Shah, after his father left Iran after, the, after World War II, uh, at, the, at the start of World War II, yeah. he swore to be serving and defending the constitution of Iran. And every step of the, the way he violated it. That's why he, you know, there's this joke that there were a lot of Iranians uh, tell each other. Uh, they say Reza Shah, that's his father, the first Pahlavi, was a prime minister who wanted to become a king, and he did become a king. Muhammad Reza, his son, was a king who wanted to become a prime minister, and he did succeed. Whereas the Shah, it was a symbol of the country's unity, bound by a constitution that he had to observe, that he had sworn to observe. But at every step of the way, he, he left reigning and he became a ruler. He became a, ru a ruler. So we, we kept, that was our favorite thing. Shah dige saltarat nemikone, hukumat mikone. He's not a symbol of the country's unity, but he's actually driving the country the way he wants to, and, the, and not anyone else wants to. You see, a good leader is someone who walks ahead of the people, but does not lose, lose sight of their wishes. He lost sight of Iranians' wishes for at least 10 years. And give, where, give, us some de give us some details, give us some uh, sure. uh, the facts, uh, uh, in terms of how this in particular affected uh you your field your colleagues i mean can you how can you characterize the nature of censorship and the crackdown on literary expression in the 60s and 70s under pahlavi rule give us some idea of that yeah first of all literature aside the show after the siakal event really left 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 the sabak loose unchained them so that they could they could do anything they wanted that's where uh, the question of shekanje or, or, or torture came to Iran. The last six, six, seven years of the Iranian monarchy was a, a horrible time. Remember those celebrations? Well, it was a whole nonsense. The Anwar Sadat, who at that time was no friend of the Shahs, said it best. He said, on behalf of the 6,000-year-old nation of Egypt, I would like to congratulate His Imperial Majesty on the 25th centenary of the Persian Empire. You see, it was, in other words, it was something where he, he, he spent $12 billion in order to wine and dine all the movers and shakers of the world, including Spiro T. Agnew, the, the vice president Spiro, at the yeah, time yeah. of the United States of America. But, so, do, but, but, but Dr. Karimi Hancock, we, we have had just as many people come on this program saying, sure. you know, that the, the role of Savak has been uh, over-exaggerated uh, and yeah. uh, the, the stats show they didn't actually kill that many people and this is revisionist history. I mean, I'm not sure how, how to uh, sort of um, uh, react to when, when folks say, say these things, but it's, uh, um, so, so we, we kind of, uh, you, you have these different sides fighting over what the history was um, sure. and trying to figure right. out what the, where the truth lies, right? The thing is, uh, yeah, uh, first of all, I don't mind people saying that because it's, it's true. Uh, Sabama today is much worse than Savak was. But at that time, we didn't have the Sabama. This comparison itself is a false pretense. Uh, right. It's like, why should we compare? Why should we compare something that's the worst in the world now at the, on, in, in the 21st century with something that was bad, really, really bad? This comparison is out of place because you're looking for reasons, for causes of things, and not for consequences at that time. You're talking about, you're, if, you, if you, there is a past, you have to compare the Shah at 22 when he became a, a Shah and, and he, he swore to the constitution and with the Shah in 1355 or 13, right, uh, or, right, or, right, you, right. or a, a few years before the revolution. There's no reason. Otherwise, you would have to say people were just stupid. 
and and I refuse to th to think that I, logically. I, gotcha. I don't think people. I got gotcha. But if writers, if writers and 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 the literary class was re were reacting to um, not just the, the political culture of the time, but in particular to censorship and and uh, the crackdown yeah. on expression, tell me, like, what wasn't allowed? What? How bad was the censorship? What? 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 What, what was the plight of the writer by the late 1960s in Iran that would lead to such a movement of intellectuals feeling so displaced? Yeah. Well, if we set aside the issue that being in prison is much worse today than it was 50 years ago, okay. putting people in prison is bad. <laughs> yes, it's just yes. bad on yes. the face of it. Someone is in prison because he wrote the wrong poem. He praised the wrong, the wrong person, okay? Or he didn't praise the Shah. And he's put in prison, or she is put in prison. Do you say, but if a revolution happens, it's going to be worse? No, I'm not saying that at all anymore. I'm just saying, what, was, what would they put in prison for? I want to know what, that's, what the level of censorship was. For, for writing, for writing. A lot of writers were in prison. In fact, I remember, this is uh, 1976, 77, I was in this country before the revolution in front of, in New York, in front of the, uh, the, the building of the United Nations, holding pictures of all writers, Iranian writers who were in prison. Mm. And Arthur Miller joined us, and Kurt Vonnegut joined us, and many others joined us to ask for freedom for these people. And, and the current generation of writers had not been even been, been born. Right, right. So we, at that time, we were not comparing, we were not saying, but if the revol revolution happens and if the Islamics take over, Islamists take over, it will become worse. In fact, we were <laughs> right, sure right. that it would not go to the, the revolution would not go to the Islamic people. The Writers Association of Iran, Yes. Uh, right. uh, gets founded in 1968. You you believe this is a pivotal event, and even though the Writers Association ends up losing uh, this historical yeah. fight against censorship, it plays a major role in the course of the Iranian Revolution. Tell us about the founding of that association and why you think it's so important. Well, yeah, here's, here's uh, what I think about it. Uh, what the revolution becomes is a mirror that in which everyone can look and see an image of their own desires. So if we distinguish three kinds of Iranians before the revolution, in the 10, 15 years before the Iranian revolution, first we had the Islamists, and they were there, and they were there, and Iran is a Muslim country, and that's it. They had, they had the right to be there. They were Iranians, as Iranian as I am, as every, and as every secular person is. And then there was those remnants of the Mossadegh era who were longing for liberalism of that sort, mm -hmm. of 30 years before that, of the time before the coup, and so on and so forth. And then there were the leftists who had just become a younger generation. They had broken away from the Today Party of Iran that was the old Communist Party uh, that towed the lines of the Soviet Union. And these three people, each one looking in the in the mirror of the revolution, saw the image of their own desires fulfilled. Only the Islamists, of course, succeeded. And I'm not sure the Islamists, I'm not sure a good Muslim is having fun today in Iran either, because this is not even Islamic. There's nothing Islamic about the regime in Iran today. It, no one should think that I am... I'm supporting, I'm in support of what happened. As I say in my, in my uh, acknowledgement, I say, I suffered the consequences. Yes. I, was, I was purged. I'm, I'm sitting in a room with my books in front of me, and, in, and I have two things in, in frames, and I look at them every time, and, and those are the documents that caused the revolution, two years into the revolution, to purge me from Tehran yes, University. Yes, yeah. And I left the United States in the early months of the revolution, in Bahara Azadi, in the spring of, uh, springtime of freedom, and at that time, I didn't even think that it, it was going to be worse. I but was then sure. let, let me get to that, if you will, because I, sure. I, I want to, and, and, but I, I'm still at the part of how we're leading up to that, and I want to know, was the Writers Association, was it specifically formed in reaction to censorship? Was, that, was its main yes. intent to try and fight this censorship yes. that was happening? 
Yes, it it, it, it and it was disbanded as a result. Yeah. Uh, in in it was in 1347. That's 1968-69. That a group of writers went to see Hoveida, who was the prime minister at the time, and uh, they asked him to please uh, do something so that the Ershad of the day, that is Bezarat Farhang, would not should not censor as censors everything that was written. And he said, well, why don't you select some people from among yourselves to watch? And Ali Ahmad gave a very good answer. He said, we are not here to define censorship for you. We are here to, to ask you to disband it. And what happened was the Writers Association of Iran was disbanded as a result. Mm. Because, again, it was the last 10 years of the Shah, Siakal had happened, and the Shah left the, the clerical leaders free, not, not free really, Khomeini was, was arrested and, and exiled to Turkey. But the left and the, and the middle, that is the liberals, got, got it a lot worse right. in the last 10 right. years of pre-revolutionary times. Yeah, that seemed pretty accepted generally, that it was the, the latitude that was given to the clergy that uh, ends up coming, you know, sure. bite, biting sure. you in the back in the end. How did, there's something interesting you talk about when, when we're talking about censorship, imprisonment, uh, the regulation of expression of writers, uh, that's all intensifying under Pahlavi rule by the mid-1970s. You juxtapose that and talk about the uh, what was also happening on a parallel course, the glorification of Iran's pre-Islamic past. How was that being used when it came to censorship? Yeah, well, Iranians are Muslims. And anyone who kind of gives primacy to ancient Iran is acting illiberally. That is against against the idea of the people, because the, and the Shah said after after he, he had been dethroned and he was in Panama or somewhere where he said, and I'm a Muslim, and he's right, he was a Muslim, he was a Muslim. He didn't. It, it, the question was not whether it's Muhammad or Cyrus the Great. The question is what political system, whether politics should be a separate field than religion. And people can choose. Yes, of course, everything, everybody was freer at the time than they are now. But is that the kind of metrics by which we come to the truth of things? No, we didn't know the, the, what's happening, what's present today was way into the future at that time. Mm. And we didn't know what shape it would take. But nobody wanted the clerical leaders to come be, form a government. Everybody thought, and Khomeini said it himself in Nofle Le Chateau in France. He said, I'm, I'm just a cleric. I'll go to Rome yeah, and, yes. and live my life there. Yes. And he, he violated that and he violated every other thing that he had said. So no one should think, whatever they think of me or you think of me, no one should think that I am for the present regime. Mm. I think, yes, given the present regime and the present experience, I would much rather go back to the Shah's time. Even though there was torture, I, I, I don't. I, I don't believe you're for the, the present regime because I've read your book <laughs> and, and you make it very clear that you're not. Uh, no, when you, now I would, but at that time, uh -huh, at uh -huh. that time, I, I'm writing this book as a as a, a participant observer, and I'm saying when I was 26, 27, and I I was not 78 like I am now. At that time, I all I had was the deterioration of the political system so much so that the democratically elected prime minister Mossadegh had, had died and had been put aside and the Shah who had sworn he would, he would actually observe the constitution was acting against the constitution because he was, after all, he was forming parties, political parties. Imagine the Shah of Iran forming political parties. And this is a, Shah, a constitutional monarch. And at that time, the government of Nixon was giving the Savak everything they wanted and the Shah all the weapons that he asked for because the Shah had the, the, the oil money and everything and he was yes. rolling in petrodollars. Tell me a bit about, as a writer and as 
as somebody who is the colleague to many of these writers who say we're in the involved in the Writers Association. Tell me about the culture of self censorship that would take place in a deeply uh, uh, yeah. censored polity. You you talk about this in one of your chapters and 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 how censorship led to self censorship. Figures like Saadi and Bahram Bezai were decrying this uh, in 1977. Sure. Tell me Absolutely. about that. Well, look, you become conscious when you already know at the time of writing that your writing will be read by someone from a very specific point of view, you try to avoid those because the idea is to have people read your words, not to have them destroyed and pulped, turned into pulp. You know, a, no one, no writer wants to just destroy afterwards. People, people write because other people can read and they want to know their opinions. And when I think that at some stage, some people who may not even under, understand the Persian language as much as I do are going to look over my, my thing and, and, and decide which is allowable and which is not, then I, I self-censor. Self-censorship is a result of censorship. There's no such thing as no censorship. There's no such censorship as, as total censorship. There's always a give and take. And the, I, I, you know, I'm saying the Shah's regime was not good, but the Shah's regime did not desire the situation where there would, nobody would write in Iran. They wanted writers. They wanted writers to write what would, to them, be be sanctioned, sanctionable, yeah. and 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 they did not. And they wrote everything that they believed. Strangely themselves. resonant uh, with what musicians or filmmakers will talk Absolutely. about in Iran today, you know, where they're, they're yeah, we have Bahman Farmanara on the show talking about the lengths he goes to, to, to try and put, you know, the allegorical scenes in his film that won't get, you know, the film censored, but uh, allow him to still put it out. But, um, but he's really jumping through hoops to try and, you know, satisfy censors rather than focusing on his own creativity. Well, I respect Mr. Farmanara very much. And I think, you know, the mention of allegory not only highlights its own work, but also speaks of the kind of censorship that uh, that you become conscious of. And therefore, what you put in the mouth of a, a fox and dog and a cat or a mouse or mouse or whoever, yeah. that which you cannot say expressively. In fact, in the end, if literary culture was the only kind of culture you cared for, it's not, but if it were, you would want to have censorship because it would elevate you to allegorizing something <laughs> that, that, that could not be said the way it was in a real way. So it's not to say some against literature or for literature when we say self-censorship is destructive in the sense that the writer finds it necessary to do, yeah. not that he desires to do it, not that he takes pleasure in doing it. Dr. Karimi Hakak, in the lead up to the revolution, there's a pivotal event, Dah Shab, the Ten Nights, oh, yes. held in uh, Tehran's Goethe Institute. This is in October of 1977, in which you write this event, these Ten Nights, are beyond question the most significant group event in Iranian intellectual history. Tell For those who've never heard of this or don't remember it, tell yeah. us about it. Well, the re there's a reason, there's a good reason why people have not heard about it, because it, it was such an important thing, but, but the way the revolution went, neither the secular intellectuals nor the clerical leaders wanted to claim it. So it became an orphan. The Ten Knights became an orphan of the culture. But that was exactly the focal point. Remember I spoke about the mirror? That's the time when the right, the left, the center, and everyone else began to see the image of their own ideals in, in, in one event. And that was the Dahshab event in October 1955. So in a way, it was a very important event. Unfortunately, every, everyone is ignoring it. The revolutionists wanted to have their own, and their own progeny of the revolution, their own uh, history and so on and so forth. The seculars, of course, wanted to... Uh, wish that they, you know, some of the people that you just named would not be there. And, you know, it was it was an event where everyone, it was the, the most the most democratic 
Iran became. And that was within the last two years because the Shah had declared a, an open political space. And was, this was part of that, that Dahshat. And when the revolution happened, the, one of the first things to be discarded was the Dahshat mm -hmm. event because it had not only the revolutionists, but others as well. And those others are not good, of course, to the revolutionists, to the clerical leaders. I want to read a passage from uh, your book when you're talking about writers and the support for the revolution by the late 1970s. And you write, many Iranian writers saw in the idea of revolution a unifying cause, a historic yeah. opportunity, and above all, the possibility of their vision's fulfillment. While the exact shape of the world that might replace the existing one eluded them, something you've said to, in this interview as well, the revolutionary situation still appeared replete with limitless possibilities. The spectacle yeah. that was marching before their eyes constituted a radically new type of phenomenon that demanded to be recognized and recorded as the realization of a long-awaited intellectual fantasy. It's almost, yeah. it's almost a giddy sentiment, but I believe that's, that that sentiment existed because of the knowledge of knowing that many intellectuals in the West go back to Iran in that moment thinking this is going to be some kind of dream scenario, right? Exactly, exactly, precisely. Look, the revolution became much more than a revolution. It was just the turn that you had to take to get to freedom. No one makes a revolution just to have a revolution. A revolution has a meaning and a content. And the content of the revolution accommodates everybody's desire. So that Khomeini saw in the revolution probably something close to what we have today. But someone like me was, was seeing a much freer Iran mm. in, in which monarchy is no longer there, which is, which is a, let's say, probably in all likelihood a republic. And people get elected and some years later they, they may not be elected. In other words, people choose who, who rules them. The rulers are ruled by the ruled or ruled over by the ruled. In other words, those who, the common man, the common woman, the common everybody, all the citizens come together to agree to vote and then agree that the majority rules but not violates the rights of the minority. But you know, you uh, on the flip side, just let me push back in the, in the I mean, sure. inevitably you sort of have to do the gut check and go, uh, 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 you know, why why were writers so blind to the possibility of how the the revolution might turn out or or intellectuals in general you know it's funny because um what's that um quote it's Maya Angelou or somebody who says uh, yeah. if if you if you want to know who someone is listen to what they're you know what they have to say about themselves and and the dangers of the co-optation by the Islamic formalists are there. You can see them certainly now in retrospect. You know, in his famous May 1978 interview with Lamont, that you'll remember, Khomeini refers to Iranian intellectuals and writers as agents of the Shah and lackeys of the superpowers. Why was something like that not a warning sign that, hey, this guy is not your messiah? Because there were intellectuals of both sorts, of all sorts. There were really intellectuals who served monarchy. But there were also intellectuals, mostly the poets and the writers, fiction writers and such, who wanted a better society. So, in a way, it's not like all intellectuals think alike and all the laity thinks alike. No. In, in every group of people in every layer of the society you have people of different sorts that's why democracy is uh, churchill said i said it, i think democracy is the worst system in the world worst political system except for every every other yeah. system yeah but are you, you are you really saying that an, uh, an iranian intellectual at the time would be sitting listening to khomeini say this and go okay but he's not talking about me my kind of intellectual he's talking about the the other intellectuals who are agents of the shah i mean it, yeah. it, it's a bit you know it's a little bit of a slippery slope isn't it no well the shah has his own poets the shah has has his, his own uh, uh, fiction writers uh, but they were not; those were not the people that I, someone like me, would read. Someone like me would read people like Shamlu and Akhavan and Furuk Farrukhzad and so on and so forth. People who would not serve a 
the pe people in power who would reflect my kind of ideals. So we have, if, if, I'm sure that there are many 78 year olds right now like me who have different opinions and that's fine. The, the point is not whether I'm right and they're wrong. The point is how can we accommodate everybody mm. in, a, in a system? And in America, in Canada, in other countries, they have they've, they've figured this out, or they, at least they've come closest to fig figuring it out. In countries like Iran, they have not. In the uh, there's a lot of people in Canada and you go U.S. would say we haven't figured out here here either. But in the in that's part of the privilege. Yeah, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. Yeah. You know, so this is that moment of catharsis. Oh, the the king is dead. You know, we've kind of got rid of the the, the bad guy. There's no more censorship. You, you say Iranian literature almost seems celebratory and poetry becomes at once perceptively more kinetic and more buoyant. When, yeah. when, how long does that last? When are the warning signs that, as you experienced in your own personal life, that, uh-oh, this isn't the, the celebratory yeah. thing that we thought? Unfortunately, that it did not last long. And I myself, in the first year of the revolution, I saw myself differing from those who were ruling the country. But I didn't think that I was useless. I and hundreds of thousands of other people thought that way and went to Iran in order to change it, to prevent it. Because we thought the revolutionary stream is bringing all kinds of things. Of course, water and beautiful water, but at the same time, a lot of other things, a lot of, you know, unwanted things. So uh, the revolution went stage by stage. In 1979, the revolution happened. This was late in the, in the, in the American year. It was, it was in, early in, in February, but in late in Iranian calendar. And as such, it took someone like Khomeini, three, four years to actually make the system, make the institutions that he wanted. It was in 1983 that the first real set of laws were put in place with the, with the aim and purpose of excluding certain ideas. For example, uh, let's say uh, the communists or the liberals and so on and so forth. And, and that became worse and worse as time went by. So when a poet says, I do not believe that any force can build tomorrow out of the stuff of yesterday's, this was our belief, but it was proven that we were wrong. Do you remember when you knew that this was not turning out as you had hoped? I mean, notwithstanding the interrogator, this is a couple of years later, but before that, do you, do you remember a moment in 80 or 81 or something where you go, oh boy, this yes, is... Yes, I remember, I remember time and again that I would find myself in... In, in debate with people who would say, just wait, things will get better. Hmm. And I was saying, when? It's, it's already three years. Hmm. It's already four years. And when it became four years, I left the country. And when I was educated in the, in the West, in America, and therefore I knew I could, I could get some job, and I did. But a lot of people lost their lives. But because they were wrong, they did not deserve. I'm not saying they deserved what they got, what they got. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, it became a combination of what we saw and what we imagined what we were seeing. Some people tolerated more things than I had, I, I had been able to. Mm. In fact, early on in the first year, I said, is Khomeini really the leader of this, this revolution? Can he manage? Is he's, he's not saying the kinds of things he said in Paris, right. in France. Right. He's saying other things. So it happened day by day, day by eventful day, things changed. And we became, and ultimately, you know, I, I knew it was not going to be the kind of country I would want to live, spend my life in. And I, 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 I came out. I traveled to, to America. How, how did the, the Writers Association of Iran come to a sad end by 1981 after the revolution oh it's unfortunate yes well uh, early in the revolution there were people that we called uh phalange ha, uh people people who were really just roam the streets and follow women and say yaru sari ya tu sari uh -huh. which is horrible uh -huh. which is horrible but the government or, or at least the government of bazargan said they are not one of us 
And Bazargan said distinctly, and he was a Muslim follower of Musaddiq, and he said, you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini wants Iran for Islam. I want Islam for Iran. You know, I wish I wish Bazargan had won. And after that, Bani Saad lost. And after that, Muntaziri lost. And there were time and again, people rose up in order to correct what was going wrong, and they, they failed. It was, it, and now it's, it's 43 years later we're talking about. It is, um, uh, it is such an education, and 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 uh, um, it's very energizing talking to you and uh, uh, hearing your perspectives. I, I'll I'll just keep you for a moment more to ask a couple of final sort of general questions, uh, and these are never easy questions to answer because they're sort of broad, uh, you know, reflective ones, but. You know, by the early 80s, as, as you've just mentioned, writers are executed, uh, imprisoned, or fleeing into exile. Uh, censorship becomes not only the norm again, but uh, so much so it does in a new and terrifying way. Uh, how do you see the censorship and crackdown on writers after the revolution on the continuum of Iranian history in the modern era? Well, one, one, one of the chapters uh, in the book is, is on that. Uh, the functionaries of the new regime thought immediately, oh, these poets used to talk about night being, being bad and, and, and uh, sahar or, or uh, you know, morning would be good. And they would start censoring people, calling people in to talk about their works. And they said, why are you saying... We, need, we still need to go a ways to get to what we want. No, people have achieved what they want. This is what they wanted. In other words, they were trying to sell the Islamic Republic as the ideal of, for everybody, not for some. Sure. I'm sure some people were sincere enough to to want what something of Islam. Some they do not believe or to tolerate better than I did the mixture of politics and religion. But even they, no, no one, no one really is left to support this regime except people who are benefiting from it financially, or uh, very, very visibly. Uh, in a way, the forty-three years really showed and is showing what kind, what happens when you mix uh, government and religion. You can't have either. You can't have religion because. All kinds of things begin to interfere. People, there are people who actually, you know, have avarice, uh, are greedy, and and they need to be set aright by by some of these uh, sheikhs, possibly not me, but whoever it is. It, it's a religious function, and there are other areas of activity that are political by nature, and they should be led by people who are responsible to those who have to have put them in play, in position of, of authority and can take that position from them. So in a way, I have come to appreciate the American system a lot more, but, but this can be said by the Canadian system as well, the, where really there is responsibility, but that does not mean gov the government can, has no power to interfere in mm, anything. Mm. You know, Given the omnipresence of censorship and um, repression mm. on, on expression uh, through generations, through regimes, you know, of the Iranian past. Are you still hopeful that we are capable of an Iranian culture that is devoid of censorship? Uh, I have no delusions about the present system. This system is cannot be corrected. This system is in in this is in fact in monarchy. One can say, you know, corruption was really rare, or at least not part of the makeup of the system. Now, corruption is part of the makeup of the system. So uh, I have no, no good opinion of this, of this present regime. But I, I've also sobered up to the fact that just because you make a revolution, we do not necessarily appear to the Ar Arcadia or to the, the ideal state. No. Right. 
It takes constant observation, constant participation, constant give and take between the laity and the and the people in authority. So, uh, if I have learned any the, the life that I have lost, is it is that a revolution is not necessarily a guarantee of a better time. It can things can get worse, and they did get worse in Iran. Uh, it's an interesting answer to me asking if you have hope. <laughs> I guess I guess, I, 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 a guarded no, perhaps is the is the sad answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, hope, hope is hope, hope is comes from within. Uh, I'm not optimistic. You're right, but I'm hopeful mm. because yeah. you can't take my hope from me, and I can't take your hope from you. It's a personal thing. Right. It, it comes from from within. But am I optimistic? No. Should I have been more optimistic about the monarchical regime? Yes, I should have been more forgiving. I should have realized that there are there are sec- segments of this society that would rule even not not as good as he did, the Shah did. I didn't know that then. I think I know it now, and I'm sure I think there's so much that I don't know even now, because it's a complicated thing. Everyone gets educated. Everyone gets hopeless at times. And then hope kind of, you know, uh, gushes from within and says you can't live without hope. But but this is a perfect uh, segue to what I I wanted to ask as a final question. Again, I'm not sure if there's any right or wrong answer to this. This is more your... Uh, whatever your personal sense is Mm -hmm. after all you've learned and studied and and worked in over the years. Uh, You know, there's there's an interesting juxtaposition. There's an interesting um, butting of heads uh, in in this conversation when we talk about Iranian writers and intellectuals between wisdom and naivete. And And I often think of the Persian the icons of Persian literature almost like our village elders, you know, in, in, in ancient societies, the most vaunted, in fact, in every society except for the current West, you know, the elders are always held to the to highest esteem. And I, I feel like our icons of literature or poetry are, are our elders. Um, and yet, h- how are we to make sense of the last 50 years of modern Iranian history with respect to the role of literature, the power and presence of those poets juxtaposed as i say the butting of heads against the naivete or exhilaration of thinking change for the better had come only to have enabled something much worse uh well the first thing we need to do is there's no such thing as perfection there's no such thing as godlike perfection i don't I, i'm not sure if, it, if god has it either but anyway it's not it's not a lot of human beings uh the lot of human beings is to make things a little better if they can. And I, I don't worry about Iran. I think I sh- we should all stop worrying about Iran. Iran has been there for millennia. So it will forge the, the next system. Will the next system be ideal? Probably not. Can the next system be a little better than what we have today? Let's hope so. So you see, I think... A gradual thing. Look at how many countries, how many lines on the map have changed over the past 500 years. Mm. And yet, Iran has remained the same. The same in some things, in, let's say, having a political presence, but not the same in tolerance. Shah Ismail, the, the founder of the Safavid dynasty 500 years ago, actually had people at the head of the markets, asking people to start insulting the Khulafa, the, the heirs to, to the Prophet Muhammad, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Osman. And if they didn't, they would be beheaded right there because he wanted to turn Iran into Shiism. And Shiism, of course, is the kind of Islam that Sunnis think it's, it's mixed with so much superstition and so on and so forth. But then superstition is a, is a world phenomenon as well. Can we say in this country, in the United States, in Canada and all that, aren't there people who think that they shouldn't vaccinate themselves for some reason? Yes, they are. Now, this may be a personal thing, but disease is not a personal thing because I can give it to you and you can give it to someone else. Mm. And so the point is human life is imperfect. Can we make it a little more perfect than it was? Uh, than it was. Let's let's work for it. 
I'm not sure if we can, but it should be doable. Can we make it ideal? Can we see the ideal world? I don't think I can. So the point is, uh, there are people who really become engaged in their countries, in their governments, or peop and people who find other ways of serving, let's say, on the cultural plane, such as I have decided to do. I'm, I, I, I didn't, don't even understand politics as much as I thought I did, but at least I know that I'm somebody in making people aware of the culture. And in, in the case of Iran, it's the cultural field that gives you really gives you the, the ability to become proud of your own country. There's nothing nothing that you that makes you proud of Iranian politics, either during the Shah or now, definitely not now, not now in, during the time of the Islamic Republic. But is there something that you find beautiful in that poetry? Yes, of course, much of it. There's so much wisdom, so much intellectual idea that's in there. You can go against it, but at least you have to be aware of it. So that's that's all I can say really to that point. Dr. Ahmed Karimi Hakkok, I thank you so much for this today. It's been so very interesting. I'm sure it'll inspire a lot of feedback and discussion, and I, I thank you so much. How can I get some of those, the feedback and the discussion? We, we, we'll share them with you. We'll happily share Please, them with you. Yes. Yes, thank and you'll you, be able to read them on our platforms as well, but we'll we'll send them to you, you for much. sure. Merci. Merci. Dr. Ahmad Karimi Hakok, a professor of Persian at the UCLA Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures and the founding director of the Center for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland. His latest book is entitled A Fire of Lilies, Perspectives on Literature and Politics in Modern Iran. Dr. Ahmad Karimi Hakok, join me from Los Angeles, California today. This is Full Time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 21, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at our fabulous website, rookmedia.com. That is rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Roham, Ahaya Mehdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on this or any of our platforms if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Mizun